Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. Yvonne Duque won a runoff election on June 17th to become the next president of Colombia. Duque is a right-of-center politician who's been a sharp critic of the peace deal negotiated by President Juan Manuel Santos that ended half a century of conflict with the FARC rebels. Duque will be sworn in on August 7th, and that, of course, raises the question, what happens to this peace deal now that the president of Colombia is on the record opposing it? Can the deal survive? And what comes next for the country? On the line with me to answer these questions and more is Provash Budin, the America's regional director for the NGO Mercy Corps. We kick off discussing the unique political history of Ivan Duque and then have an extended conversation about what his election means for the peace deal. As always, if you have anything on your mind that you'd like to share with me, please send me an email. You can do so using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. And if you haven't done so, do check out that special episode I posted on the Montreal Protocol. This was the 1987 international treaty that closed the hole in the ozone layer. And this episode was a special production that used a series of interviews I conducted and archival audio to tell the story of how the world closed the hole in the ozone layer. So go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to check out that and other past episodes. And now here is my conversation with Provash Budin of Mercy Corps. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, Ivan Duque is a newcomer to Colombian politics. He's never held an office before, and he's a protege of the former president, Alvaro Uribe, who uh, for the past eight years has been somewhat of a nemesis to President Santos. President Santos, in fact, was his defense minister during this time, but Uribe is known for his hard line uh, during the 1990s uh, against the FARC and received quite a bit of support from the U.S. in terms of military operations to corner the FARC into a smaller military unit. Yeah, that name, Alvaro Uribe, is definitely one in which I, I recognize having sort of read about and studied Colombian politics in, in the 90s and planned Colombia and the Clinton administration. They were like the, the partners against the FARC back then. That's right. And it also established the, 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 the Colombia as uh, one of the best friends of the U.S. In, in the region. And that relationship's existed ever since. So Ivan Duque now is cut from the same cloth as 
uh, Alvaro Uribe from the center-right party in Colombia, and uh, actually won um, by the biggest margin that has ever been seen in Colombian politics. The other thing is he's also the youngest president-elect. He's 41 years old. Um, And so there's a lot of observers looking at how he may roll out a new administration without a lot of experience in Colombian politics. Right now, he's surrounded himself by uh, some old hands from the Uribe administration and from others in the Santos administration in terms of his new cabinet. Um, But the verdict is still out, although we know that he wants to change uh, some of the policies that Santos put into effect, especially around the peace accords. Yeah, so so that was actually going to be my question. To what extent was this presidential election a referendum on the peace accords? So the election itself uh, was a comment um, to some degrees on the peace deal. However, there, it was more about President Santos's eight years um, in administration and uh, his handling of affairs for the regular Colombian people. So one interesting um, statistic is that during polling time during the campaign this year, only 6% of the Colombian population polled actually thought that the peace deal was um, an important factor in their lives and moving forward ahead with the new administration. So it's almost like the peace deal itself has um, slipped back into people's minds and they're focusing on things like uh, health care, education, better roads, better jobs, addressing corruption and, and moving development forward for, for uh, all Colombians. Um, however, as you know, in 2016, President Santos had uh, launched a referendum itself that was voted down by the populace um, because there is a feeling that the peace deal in itself gives up too much to FARC leaders who have caused years of uh, injustice and abuse. And uh, there's also the flip side of the coin of paramilitary groups and, and others that cause a lot of violence and uh, assassinations and um, and created uh, hundreds of thousands of victims within Colombia. However, um, the populace here in Colombia feels that the FARC shouldn't be part of Colombian politics and really needs to um, be held accountable more than what the transitional justice system under the peace accords offers. And so in that regards, uh, yes, the Colombian uh, people did vote um, for a fresh face and for a new way forward. But there's some concerns as well about what that new way forward is and, and who is it for. So, for example, Ivan Duque very much represents the business community in Colombia. And 77% of Colombians live in urban areas. And as you know, Colombia has progressed uh, tremendously over the past 20 years with decreasing homicide rates, um, better investments in agricultural economy, in tourism and the business sector. But there's concern that inequality in Colombia is still um, very much at the forefront. Um, In fact, Colombia is in the top 10 of uh, the most unequal countries in the world. And Ivan Duque needs to be able to address uh, progress in Colombia for all Colombians. When you look at the election results, uh, the majority of Colombians who voted for uh, Petros, which is the leftist candidate um, who only received 42% of the vote, they come from the rural areas, mostly Afro-Colombian areas on the coast, some indigenous areas, um, but don't necessarily uh, represent the politics and the culture of the urbanized, progressive business community of Colombia. 
Um, a few things to, to, to unpack there. First, it's like really interesting to me how deeply unpopular Santos is as he's leaving office. I mean, he is like vaunted uh, around the world, a Nobel Peace Prize winner, the guy who brought peace to the country, yet he is seemingly reviled by most of the population. That's true. Uh, he's a darling in the international community, um, and he will probably go on after his uh, after his departure from this administration to be part of the international community. Um, but within Colombia, people have felt that he gave up too much to the FARC, that his efforts were focused on the peace deal and not enough on the day-to-day issues that Colombians face. Do you think history um, will vindicate in, him, in, though? I, I, I absolutely think so. I think uh, those who are against the peace deal are on the wrong side of history. And Santos uh, took a brave move to uh, go against his, his former uh, boss um, and d- decide to move ahead with a peace agreement with the FARC. Um, history will show that he did the right thing, was very courageous to do so. The peace deal is not perfect, but it's good enough to start implementing and uh, there's still a lot of challenges in the implementation of the deal itself. Well, well, so so let's talk about that because Duque comes to office having opposed the peace deal, but seemingly he can't just like rip it up, right? I mean, what what comes next in terms of impl- implementation that perhaps Duque can slow walk or even reverse? Well, he can't rip it up because so many parts of the peace deal are already enshrined in the constitutional courts. And so the implementation um, legally goes forward. However, he can create spoilers, for example, by not financing portions of the peace deal um, in the same regards that, you know, uh, Congress in the U.S. has slowed down financing of Obamacare. Um, So that can happen. And um, he is also looking at portions of the deal, especially around transitional justice, about how to restructure that or modify it so that the FARC uh, leadership and members of the FARC um, that were implicated in um, some type of uh, war crimes are not allowed to participate in a political process or hold seats in Congress. Um, so what, what, what is the deal say now? For- Something like if you participate in some sort of like truth and reconciliation process and you, you can also, you can then serve in, in Congress because the peace deal reserves a set number of seats uh, for uh, FARC in, in Congress, right? And presumably they, they, this is the first election in which they uh, are entering uh, Parliament, right? That's correct. They've, Congress, they've entered yeah. Congress. Congress um, they have yeah. five seats in, in, in the House and five seats in the Senate. Um, however, uh, when they were campaigning, the, the candidates under the FARC banner, um, they did receive uh, barely uh, a few percentages of the vote However, they do have this legal opportunity to take seats in Congress for a fixed period of time. Um, so what Duque is, is trying to do is also address those that have committed crimes against uh, humanity to not go through a transitional justice process, which is one of uh, sitting down with the person that you victimize, asking for forgiveness, and committing yourself to a reconciliation process that inclu- includes uh, some type of community service or other types of um, uh, 
what they call quote unquote punishment, but that's for the benefit of an individual or community, as opposed to regular jail time. Um, and so Colombia is taking steps um, that really hasn't been seen before in too many peace arrangements. Um, South Africa has gone through it, obviously, through its truth and reconciliation, but not after uh, you know 52 years of conflict. Um, you've seen portions of this around transitional justice take place within Spain and Ireland with the Basque Party and that still has a, a representation in Parliament in Spain and, and members of the IRA who are politicians uh, mm -hmm. like Jerry Adams. Yeah. And so um, in Colombia, um, I think it's important for Colombians to try and move on behind, you know, beyond the regular traditional types of punishment and using traditional justice and, and open up to different forms of truth and reconciliation. That's a hard thing to do when your family's been killed by a member of the FARC and you need to sit down and ask for forgiveness. But it's interesting, some of the most victimized communities, for example, there's a community in Bojaya uh, in Choco, Western Colombia, which is predominantly African-American, uh, sorry, Afro-Colombian, which has... Um, which suffered some of the worst uh, uh, assassinations and human rights abuses over the years of conflict, that town itself voted in favor by like 96% for a candidate who will want to go through the truth and justice uh, process as well as for the peace deal itself. And they want to be able to sit down with their victimizers um, and go through a reconciliation process. So if, if these communities can do it, uh, the average Colombian should be able to open their 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 eyes, open up their hearts to a a new way of structuring justice in the country. So uh, it's interesting to me. I mean, elections in Colombia have typically not been peaceful uh, affairs. Yet this election was, you know, largely peaceful. It's probably the most peaceful election, the least violent election in recent modern Colombian history, and that's probably due to the fact that there's a peace deal in, in place. And yet the person who won it wants to undo key elements of that peace deal. It, you know, uh, Colombia has gone through a, a significant process of democratization over the past 50 years. Um, it is considered a stable democracy within Latin America, and it has the types of checks and balances um, that allow for a healthy democracy, for debate from both sides um, at uh, the highest levels of government. There are obviously problems of corruption. There's impunity within the justice system for criminality. There's a lot of human rights abuses around uh, uh, against uh, uh, human rights defenders, especially land defenders. But in this particular election, um, people have seen both sides of the coins with the candidates and have chosen, um, and there hasn't been any violence or out, uh, outbursts or protests around the democratic process itself, and that's a, that's a healthy thing. Um, I think Colombia is, is well-positioned to lead in terms of uh, op an open and free democratic state. However, there's still quite a number of spoilers out there um, for a democratic system to exist uh, in rural areas of Colombia, where there's still a patron-client relationship, um, lack of state investments, and um, a lot of illegal economies and uh, criminal uh, elements that exist in, in these areas. 
Um, so looking forward, what um, what will you be looking towards that could help you sort of understand one way or, or another how um, number one that the, the peace deal uh, is faring, uh, number two like how uh, Duque is is faring as as president. Um, what are some early indicators that that you might um, expect? Would suggest to you one way or another, for example, how the how the peace deal will fare in the in the next several months. Yeah, um, you know, just starting with with Duque's uh, uh, ascent and and new role as president, I think that the top two things that we're looking at as uh, a international NGO that operates in Colombia is um, number one, if he will modify the peace deal to exact more traditional justice instead of transitional justice. And that could um, disrupt the type of reconciliation and reintegration processes that are underway right now in in uh, key municipalities that were affected by the conflict. The second thing is uh, the, the way that Duque will approach uh, coca eradication in Colombia. And coca eradication is right now the political hot potato but in terms of U.S. and Colombian relationships. Um, in this past year and last year, the Trump administration came down quite heavily on, on the Santos administration um, because coca cultivation is at an all-time high in Colombia after about 25 years. Um, you know, back in the early 90s or so, coca cultivation due to different public policies at the time was at about... 50,000 hectares in the country. It's over 200,000 hectares right now and growing. And what's happened is that with the disintegration of the FARC um, after the peace accord was signed, um, new actors are coming in and filling in the void around illegal economies and narco-trafficking, which include um, the National Liberation Army, which is still a small um, rebel force uh, that is based in Marxist tendencies. That, is that like ELN? Uh, has an, that's the ELN. Yeah, yeah. And they uh, have been. They went to the peace table um, earlier this year, but that dissolved. And I think Duque has got a challenge ahead of him to be able to get back to uh, a peace agenda with the ELN. Um, but it does affect the way that the implementation of the peace accords can roll out in rural areas if uh, illegal economies and illegal armed actors are still out there. There's also a, a growing number of Mexican cartels that are entering the country and taking advantage of the coca trade. Um, and it, it affects the way that farmers in Colombia, um, who are predominantly involved in the agricultural economy and the backbone of uh, the GDP in Colombia, um, are uh, attracted to the coca trade because... Um, it, it's a it's a great business for them at this point. Um, however, it really makes it difficult for the state to be able to then take a hold in these rural areas that have been affected by conflict um, and have state presence with basic services around schools and healthcare and education, um, etc. As as an NGO, um, again, just to respond to your your first question, I think what you know we want to see from the Duque administration is a commitment for. Um, 
equal opportunities for all in Colombia. Even though that's part of the campaign rhetoric, it's been very, very difficult for the Colombian state to offer an inclusive vision for all Colombians because of incentives that are built hmm. within the political economy of, of the country. Um, for example, uh, you know, Colombia has, has, uh, has uh, got um, the size of Germany and France. However, something like 54% of all the land is owned by 1% of the population. Um, that makes it really unequal and makes it difficult for people to be uh, claim their stake in part of the progress that Colombia is, is going through. And when land investments take place, it's usually for large agro-industry and agro-business. Um, I think you know now that the peace agreement has allowed an opening for the business community to come in to Colombia, which is a great thing, um, the business community has to be very careful about how it invests in Colombia. So, you know, one thing, thanks to the war of 52 years, um, you know, things like uh, extractive industries were limited in Colombia, and uh, Colombia has quite a lot of natural resources, including oil and, and gas and, and minerals. And um, when businesses come in, they really have to pay attention to the triple bottom line of social impact and environmental uh, sustainability within the type of investments they make. What they shouldn't do is the same type of bad development that's taken place across Latin America for a few hundred years. There's an excellent opportunity for businesses to do the right thing, to include citizens that in rural areas and part of the development process, part of the decision-making process that companies um, will want to uh, uh, invest in in their areas, especially around uh, mining, uh, gas, oil, agro-industry. And it's important to not create the conditions of inequality and frustration that many Colombians felt uh, 60, 70, 80 years ago that led to the beginning of the conflict. Um, so I'm curious to learn what uh, your work at, at Mercy Corps looks like today on, on the ground in Colombia. You're one of, you know, Mercy Corps is one of the largest you know, international NGOs out there. Um, what, what, what's, what are your activities on on a day to day basis, and and how do they, how are they impacted by uh, the peace accord? Well, we've been here for Mercy Corps has been in Colombia for thirteen years, and we've worked primarily in areas that have been affected by the conflict. Um, in about you know eighteen departments of the western side of the country. Um, where the majority of the conflict did, has taken place. Um, our work is primarily to be a bridge between civil society, the public sector, government, and the private sector, increasingly more so. Um, you know, for civil society is quite robust in Colombia, but has been voiceless in many um, political circles. And now there's an opportunity under the peace accords to really bring up the voice of uh, women and youth, um, farmers, associations, um, Afro-Colombian and indigenous groups to the decision-making table as new investments under the peace deal are, are coming into play. Secondly, we also uh, accompany the state in rolling out its public policy in rural areas in Colombia. You know, uh, I've been I've worked in a lot of places around the world, like Afghanistan and Sudan and Iraq and Sri Lanka. And I tell you that Colombia's got some of the best public policy I've seen. Um, so well written. It's progressive. It's, it's, uh, 
it, and, it, and it's quite unique. Um, but the Colombian state has a huge challenge in in implementing public policy that's written very well and and uh, uh, sealed up with a bow tie in in, Colum- in Bogota. So when the rubber hits the road in these rural areas, um, the state has huge challenges on implementing um, public policy. Firstly, what's like a good example of that? Can, can you of, break that down? Like, what's what's a good example of like an excellent written piece of public policy that is difficult to implement in rural areas? So, for example, in the education sector, um, the the Ministry of Education they've got the right type of uh, uh, policy around rural education, around improving quality, improving the type of uh, reach to all schools, infrastructure, training of teachers, um, competitiveness with their other Latin American neighbors, um, and it's and it's a key pillar within. Uh, the Colombian strategy over the next uh, uh, four to eight years. However, when you go out to some of the places we work, like in southern Colombia in Putumayo or in Choco, um, the state really doesn't have a strong presence there, um, and they don't have the type of financing that's required to enact their vision um, for all Colombians. Urban schools in Colombia and Bogota and Medellin, etc., they're fine and they're competitive. Um, mm. However, there's a huge gap between the quality of education in the urban areas and the rural areas, and the state has a difficult time of attracting the right teachers, paying them well, um, addressing corruption in the education system, um, and uh, addressing the needs for children from diverse backgrounds, from ethno uh, education for Afro-Colombians, the indigenous way of approaching education. Um, and so there's also concern for the state officials and functionaries to be able to operate in areas where uh, insecurity is still uh, an issue and um, also just the capacity of, of state functionaries to get their job done. So in that regards, Mercy Corps accompanies um, you know, officials from the Ministry of Education to roll out their plans, um, link them up to the type of parent-teacher groups that we work with, and then um, have those parent-teacher groups and others advocate up to their officials to to um, do a better job. And so we think um, that there's a lot of room for growth and opportunity, but still a huge challenge for the Colombian state to get down into the weeds, and in, especially in these areas that are still fragile. Um, the, the, there's numerous pockets of fragility in Colombia because of years of conflict. Um, and though you see progress in the urban areas, it's important for the Duque administration to really double down on what's written in the peace accords and uh, invest more in rural areas around education and health and agricultural productivity and infrastructure. Uh, well, well, Pravesh, thank you so much for your time. This was this was very helpful and and timely. And, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the, the Duque administration proceeds, both in terms of some of the broader, um, sort of domestic political issues, but also the, 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 the peace deal as well. So thank you. Yeah, I, I think the Duque administration is, is, I, I think they have the right vision in, in most regards. I think the implementation is always the hardest part for any new president, but we're willing to, give any new president the benefit of the doubt and would love to is still encourage the Colombian government to uh, do the right thing when it comes to addressing 
human rights issues, uh, rural investments, and implementing the peace accords. Uh, all right. Well, thanks. We'll, we'll uh, see how this unfolds. Great, Mark. It was a pleasure talking with you. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Provash. That was helpful. And yeah, you probably noticed there's like a, a little kind of uh, hiccup in the audio recording uh, in the first five minutes of the episode. We uh, started on Skype. Then I had to call him on his landline because the connection was shaky. Anyway, I, nonetheless, I, I thought the episode went very well. So big thank you to Provash. And we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.